Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to everyone. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and we're glad to have you here with us today. Uh, it's Christmas time, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, if you haven't driven around or felt the uh, nice crisp air, it is Christmas time. We're talking about Christmas here at Genesis in this series called Advent Conspiracy. But uh, last night, Jenny and I were talking, and we were talking about Christmas. We've been married for 10 years now, and we were talking about some of our more memorable uh, Christmases, Christmas experiences, and, and maybe you've got some of, of your own. But my most memorable Christmas experience uh, with my wife involved three things, a broken furnace, a Chinese buffet, and the game SimCity 3000 for the computer. Now, let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it was our, I believe, we were in our second year of marriage together. It was our second Christmas together. We were living in Anderson. My wife was working the second shift in the ER in Anderson, which meant that on Christmas Day, she had to work from 3 to 11. So we spent Christmas Eve with her parents up near Fort Wayne, and then we came home late Christmas Eve night, and we woke up very early, a morning much like this morning, in our house in Anderson to a furnace that was not working. Now, I know that it's one thing to call the furnace guy after hours and to pay that rate, but in my mind, I was wondering, what in the world do you pay on Christmas morning, you know, when nobody's working? This is going to be like eight times what it normally costs. And so we called, we got the furnace thing all taken care of. Well, we hadn't really thought much about lunch and what we had planned to do that day. And as we went through the refrigerators and, uh, refrigerator and looked at all the leftovers, there wasn't really anything in there that could uh, best feed us on, on a Christmas day. And so I said, let's do this. Why don't we go see if there's anything open? And so we got in the car and we were driving down Scatterfield Road in Anderson and there was something open. Would you believe it? And maybe some of you have dined at such a place before, but there open on Christmas day was a Chinese buffet. And so we went inside. It was a Chinese buffet that we had often eaten lunch at. And uh, hey, you know, what says Merry Christmas more than a little pork fried rice, a little wonton soup, and a little General Tso's chicken? And so uh, we dined and uh, we, we, we ate as much as we wanted off of this buffet. And then we got the bill. And this lunch buffet that was typically like a $5.99 all-you-could-eat buffet, for some reason on Christmas Day was $14.99 because I guess somewhere on the buffet in some little tray or something they had lobster, which gave them the right to just raise the price of the buffet like 7 or $8 more. And so here we are paying you know, $14.99 on Christmas Day for a buffet, and, and who really wants Chinese buffet on Christmas Day? Uh, so we went home, and 3 o'clock approached. My wife was off to work, and so while most traditional families were gathering around the fireplace and eating dessert together and telling Christmas stories and watching reruns of Christmas movies, I settled into a game of SimCity 3000 for like the entire eight hours that Jenny was working. Like I started a game and when she came home, I was still building my city uh, on this computer game if you've ever played it before. But that was one of our most memorable Christmases and something that uh, we still kind of laugh about. And I was thinking, how in the world could I work that story into my message today? And I didn't come up with a way to do it. And so it really kind of stands alone. I'm not going to try and force it, uh, except to say, hey, that first Christmas 2,000 years ago was pretty memorable as well. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. Uh, go to the very first book of the New Testament. Go to the Gospel of Matthew and go to Matthew chapter 2. Jesus changed everything. His birth changed everything in Israel, and it still changes things today. Matthew was a writer, one of four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was one of the writers that wrote about Jesus' life. It was from his account, it was from his perspective, and he was writing to a particular audience. 
Uh, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. And so as we discussed last week in the genealogy uh, in Matthew chapter 1, there was a reason for the way that he did things. He, he did certain things for a reason. He wrote certain things uh, for a specific purpose, for his audience, for the, audience, for the Jewish audience. But these, these truths, and uh, they also mean something to us as well. And so we're going to begin today in Matthew chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 1, if you'll look there with me. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. And just stop right there for a second, and, and let's unpack that a little bit. In 63 BC, this is before the birth of Christ, Pompey, one of the great Roman generals at the time, stormed Jerusalem and claimed the entire region of Israel for the nation of Rome. And so Rome presided over Israel, which meant that Rome appointed all of the rulers and all of the kings for Israel. Nothing happened in Israel without Rome knowing about it. And in 37 BC, Herod was appointed ruler of Israel by the Roman Senate. And so they gave him, they even gave him the prestigious title of King of the Jews. Now hold on to that, if you will, because it's very important. Well, Herod was an exceptional ruler. He was an exceptionally skilled ruler, and he made a number of contributions to Israel. He built these great, uh, impressive palaces and fortresses, uh, these great cities. If you go to Israel, you can still see the ruins standing there today. His greatest act, probably his most notable act as a ruler, as the king of the Jews, was the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the religious center uh, for the Jewish people. Herod developed strong partnerships with other countries as a great diplomat, and in an effort to help Israel during a particularly difficult time, uh, the records say that he even sold uh, much of his kitchenware, his dishware, I guess his china, uh, in order to help feed the people, in order to help aid the people during this time of crisis. So Herod, Herod he knew how to play Rome for his own benefit. Uh, he only ruled because Rome allowed him to, and so at just the right time, he knew how to play the Roman Senate in order to maintain his position. And because he was so highly respected by his superiors in Rome, Herod would go down in history known as Herod the Great, is what they'd often referred to him as. Well, here's the irony of it all. While the people of Rome, while the Roman government absolutely adored him, the people of Israel despised him. I mean, he, he was the scum of the earth, in their opinion. I mean, they had no respect for him at all whatsoever. He had little to no support from the people of Israel, and this drove him insane. I, literally, if you look at the historical records, Herod went absolutely insane. But he went paranoid and went to these great levels, these great heights, uh, in order to protect his position. And as his public opinion numbers plummeted, his mistreatment and his brutality towards the people of Israel uh, increased, and he did some crazy things because of it. I just will give you a couple of examples. Uh, he repeatedly wrote to the Roman government requesting permission to execute one of his two sons for treason. Uh, the Roman emperor Augustus would eventually say to him, I'd rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Uh, he once threw a big pool party in Jericho. He threw this great pool party and invited all of these people, and the high priest was there. Well, Herod got a little jealous of the fact of how the high priest looked in his board shorts, you know, compared to how Herod looked in his board shorts, and so he drowned him on the spot. 
uh, kind of put a real damper on the pool party. He drowned the high priest in front of everyone else and would later go on throughout his reign to kill 45 of the priests in Israel. Uh, He killed a wife that he was jealous of along with her grandfather, her mother, her brother-in-law, and three of his own sons with her. He executed anyone who threatened him, and he looked the other way when Roman soldiers crucified innocent uh, Israeli citizens for the sure joy of it. This was Herod's legacy. You know, while Rome, you know, sitting thousands of miles away, referred to him as Herod the Great, the people of Israel knew him as this insane, vicious, paranoid ruler who lived a life of fear and did everything to protect his own throne. Go with me, if you would, back to the text for just a second. Let's start at verse 1 again. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, which is about six, seven, eight miles on the outside of Jerusalem, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, these are the wise men. The word magi is a shortened word of the word magician. It's where we get our word magician. They traveled, they came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. We're going to talk a little bit more about the wise men next week, but, but let, let's just call a time out here for a second so we can see what's happening. I mean, do you understand the tension at all, knowing a little bit about Herod's reputation now and what's actually taking place? Look at it this way. The doorbell rings, okay? Herod goes to the door. You know, he's just gotten out of the shower. He answers the door. There are these three funny guys on camels here to ask a question, okay? And they're asking, uh, where can we find... Who? The king of the Jews. And Herod's thinking to himself, okay, well, I'm I'm standing right in front of you. There should have been a sign on the door. I think you know where you're standing right now. And the wise men at this moment are kind of thinking to themselves, whatever, um, something has happened. Uh, You're out of touch. You have no idea what's taken place. But someone who has, has, has come who is going to take this position from you. I mean, it's a slap in the face. And so on the one hand, we have this earthly king. We've got Herod and and everything that he stands for. It's his throne. It's his kingdom. It's his rule. He fell into the position. And despite the fact that things are out of hand in Israel, he's in charge. And no one's about to take that from him. On the other hand, there's this baby that within the last couple of years has been born in Bethlehem. He's the one the prophets had spoke of in the Old Testament He's the king of the Jews. He's the hope of Israel. He's the savior of the world who has come to free his people. And a few know this, and, and the wise men are curious about this. And all of Israel has been anticipating the arrival of this Messiah to the earth, but most of them did not realize that it has finally come to take place. And then look at verse 3. It says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, Herod was not about to hand over his power to anyone. I mean, he had demonstrated this in his brutality over the years. Anyone who threatened him was immediately taken down. And the people were afraid of what his reaction would be. Not only was Herod disturbed by the news that he was hearing, but the people of Israel were absolutely disturbed because they knew his reputation. They knew what he was capable of. And this now is the great new tension in Israel. 
And it's this great power struggle of sorts. It's a battle between an earthly king and a heavenly king. It's a battle between wrong and a battle between right. And it's a battle between heaven and earth and dark and light. It's a battle between the way it has always been and the way now that things could be. Jesus' birth changed everything. It did then, and it still does today. And so Jesus came, and he was born into this crazy, upside-down place called Israel. He, He was born into a world overrun by evil and oppression. He was born into a world full of self-centeredness and and self-gratification. He came to a world that was still coping with pain and loss and brokenness. He came to a world full of people who were desperately searching for a reason to live, looking for a purpose to live, thinking that things could possibly be different and hoping that they would be. But I ask, if, if Jesus came for all of these reasons then, Has anything really changed today? I mean, if Jesus came to set all of these things straight, to bring hope, you know, to eliminate evil, and to bring down oppression, has anything really changed today? I mean, how far have we come in in correcting these fears? And, And it doesn't help, does it, that things just seem to be a little on edge today? Everything seems to be so gentle and fragile. I mean, when you think about the terror attacks over the past couple of weeks in Mumbai, India, and the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, when we think about the fact that people are dying at alarming rates in third world countries today, and even in impoverished housing developments in the city of Indianapolis, I mean, we have a new president set to take office in January. President-elect Barack Obama will take the oath of office in January, and with any new president, the lines of division are clearly drawn right now. There are some who are angry. There are many who are hopeful. And the reality of it all is that change is just simply frightening. You know, as we think about new policies and a new administration, what will that mean for us? Where are we going? What does the future look like? And what can we say about the economy and the recession and job loss? And and we wonder, will it all turn around? Are things going to get better? Have things really changed since Jesus came? Or are the problems that Israel was facing then just packaged a little differently, but they all are here even today? Herod was disturbed, and all Israel with him. And I think many living today are, are fearful. And I think if we got real honest with ourselves, uh, we probably would, would admit that we're a little fearful too. You know, whether it be the economy or whether it be your job or the situation with your kids right now or your family. You know, maybe it's your marriage or, or just wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. You know, I love to listen to talk radio, but I find that as I listen to talk radio, I get more and more depressed and more and more fearful of things in the way, you know, that we're headed. And sometimes I just have to turn it off and just say, you know what, um, you know, I'm going to focus on one who's greater. And it makes me a little nervous too. And now Christmas is here, you know, hey, let's get excited, let's have Chinese, you know. Uh, add to the tensions, you know, the traffic jams and, you know, bad fruitcake and financial stress and your Christmas list, relatives that you really don't want to see, depression, 
loneliness. I mean, who's really looking forward to Christmas this year? But I think we have to stop and ask, is that the way it was supposed to be? I mean, is that the way it's supposed to be? I mean, when God sent Jesus Christ into the world, do you really think that he meant for this Christmas season to be known for retail sales and family gatherings and disagreements and depression? Or was it about something else? Absolutely. I mean, God meant for Jesus' birth to symbolize something great and something new. That Jesus Christ's birth was the start of something new. And Christmas, 2,000 years later, should be this great reminder to us as Christians that Jesus Christ came into this world to overcome all that is wrong in this world and to change everything. And that's what Christmas means. And that's what Jesus means to us who, who proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our life. For those of us who have put our trust in him, that Jesus Christ has changed everything. That we don't have to be disturbed, but that we can look ahead to a God who is in complete control of all things. And as he has promised, he will be faithful. And so knowing this, what if we made a decision that Christmas could be different? I mean, what if our outlook could, could change in Christmas? What if you and I were able to, to refocus uh, this morning our attitudes and our thought processes and our actions so that things could be different this season, that, that our heart could be different, that, that our hope could be different, that our faith could be different? And what if the people of this church could lead this change in this community? And what if the people in this room could lead that change in your families? and in your workplace, and in your school. I mean, the church can lead that change. We as followers of Jesus Christ can lead that change. You and I can lead that change together. And last week we talked about the importance of of choosing Jesus. Joseph chose Jesus. He allowed Jesus to be the motivation behind his decision to stick with Mary. And what if we made the decision to choose Jesus too? What if we allow Jesus to be the motivation behind our spending and every gift that we give? What if we allow Jesus to be our motivation behind our attitude at every Christmas party or every family gathering that we attend? What if we found strength to overcome loneliness and despair and loss and depression during this season by relying on Jesus, by turning to him and seeking his love and seeking the strength that he has promised to us? And what if we, with everything that is going on in the world around us right now, allowed our hearts to be so encouraged this Christmas by the realization that Jesus came, that we allowed our faith to be strengthened, that we turned our eyes and we turned our hearts toward a God who is faithful, who will walk with us and will take care of us through all things. Jesus changes everything. He did in Matthew chapter 2, and he does it still today. Jesus changes everything. And as the people in the first century went looking for hope and answers, people are doing the same today. Jesus provided those answers then, and he can do it also uh, right now. Let's go back to the text, if you you would, with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 again, look at verse 3. If you're looking in your Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 says, All of Israel was absolutely freaked out by Herod's reaction. What would he do? What was he capable of? 
you know, Herod, the Magi, and the people of Israel were now forced to deal with the presence of two kings. There are two people who have been given the title King of the Jews. One, given the title by the Roman Senate, and maybe just sort of accepted by the people of Israel, and another being proclaimed by the Scriptures, being proclaimed by these wise men, these magi, as the true King of the Jews. We've got Herod, or we've got Jesus. We've got two ways of life. We've got a life of hope in both places, um, but one that is greater. And you know what? I think you and I have a choice to make too. I think you and I have a choice to make, like Israel, we can choose to, to kind of give in and settle for the things the way that they are around us today, all the evil that's around us. We can give in and we can hope that January will get here ASAP and we can move on to a regular way of life. We can choose that. We can accept what's going on around us or we can make a change. We can make a decision for ourselves that things will be different, that things can be different with Jesus. And so it all comes down to the way that we look at things. It's almost like a comparison between Herod and Jesus then or a comparison between the condition of the world today and also what Jesus can mean for us today too. And so let's look at it like this. First of all, if we look back to Matthew chapter 2, Herod's throne, it symbolized one thing. It symbolized fear. Herod's throne symbolized fear. And the people were disturbed because they knew what might happen. Somebody was going to get the hook. Somebody was going to lose their head all over this. You know, this guy was crazy. Look at it like this. It is, it is told that Herod, as he looked ahead to his death, because he was a very sick man, probably even at this point in the text, he was a sick man towards the end of his life, that looking ahead, he knew that he was so despised and so hated that no one would mourn his death the day that he died. So here's what he did. When he could see the days approaching, that most likely he was going to lose his life, he set orders to arrest thousands of people, thousands of leaders around Judea, and he had all of those people taken, or they were arrested, they were taken, and they were put into captivity in the Hippodrome. Okay, think horse racing track, all right, into this large Hippodrome, and they were kept there. Herod gave the orders this way. He said, when I die, give orders to the archers to kill everyone in the Hippodrome in cold blood. Why? so that there will be mourning in Israel on the day that I die. Those were the orders that he gave. Fortunately, the day that he died, those orders were not uh, played out. But Jesus, the same Jesus, born into this time with Herod, Jesus changed everything. While Herod's throne symbolized fear, Jesus' throne symbolizes hope. Few knew that. The wise men hoped for that. Jesus' throne symbolizes hope. Jesus, he came to the earth, in Matthew chapter 2, with a mission. I mean, he had something in mind. There was a purpose for his coming. He often spoke of this mission. I mean, he referred to it in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, as his father's business. What did it include? Well, just a couple of things. One, it, Jesus came for sinners. He spoke of that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He said, For I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So Jesus did not come for the perfect. Meaning, you don't have to be perfect in order to be received by Jesus. He didn't come for the perfect. Jesus came for the sick. He came for those who realized that they could not make it through life on their own. He came for those who knew that they could not rescue themselves. And you don't have to be perfect either. 
Do you know that Jesus Christ came to this earth for you? And he does not require perfection from you. He just requires that you accept that and realize that you cannot achieve perfection or forgiveness on your own, but that you would be willing to leave that up to him. I mean, it's, it's why he came 2,000 years ago, and it, it's why he came for today. We don't have to be perfect. Jesus came for the sick. It says Jesus came to do the work that God sent him to do. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. God sent Jesus into this world. It was a part of his plan. If you remember from the genealogy last week, all of the names, all of the occasions, all adding up to Jesus, God has always had a plan. And his plan for life then and his plan for life today and his plan for your life is Jesus. It's still Jesus. And no matter what you may face right now, it's Jesus. And I think the great thing about all of this is we see a great glimpse of, of, of what should be God's great reputation here, that God loved us so much that he was willing to send his own son into the world to die for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for you and me by sending his son Jesus into the world. And in Jesus, he proved his love. And finally, Jesus came to bring hope. John chapter 12, verse 46. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus came as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That we shouldn't be so satisfied or, or settle with the things of this world, the darkness of this world, but instead look ahead to the light. That's the light that only Jesus provides. A great example of this was seen uh, in a book entitled Pass Through the Fire. Uh, Rick Boonsha tells the story of this Hawaiian surfer. His name is Eddie Aikua. Uh, I thought I'd share this story with you. He writes, if you ever visit Hawaii, you may notice a plethora of bumper stickers, most affixed to rusting surfboard-laden cars proclaiming, Eddie would go. This curious saying is a tribute to the courage of Hawaiian waterman Eddie Aikua. Aikua was a lifeguard and a big wave surfer on Oahu's treacherous north shore. Strong and confident in the water, Eddie wouldn't pull back on any wave, regardless of how big or how dangerous. During the spring of 1978, Eddie was a crewman on the Hakulua, a replica of an ancient Hawaiian sailing vessel that was making its way toward Tahiti. Somewhere in the Hawaiian Channel, in stormy seas and gale-force winds, the boat overturned, casting all on board into the water. After a night of the crew members futilely trying to attract passing boats and planes with fares, flares, Eddie Aikua volunteered to paddle his surfboard, which he kept on the Okalua, to get help. He had assessed the situation and realized that options were running out, and soon the prevailing currents would take them far out to sea beyond the reasonable hope of rescue. There was no restraining Eddie. He was determined to go, and if anyone could make the arduous paddle, it was this outstanding waterman. And so he set off with a strobe light and a ring of oranges around his neck for what he estimated would be a 12-mile paddle to the tiny island of Lanai, and he was never seen again. A passing boat later rescued the crew of the Okalua, 
Eddie's willingness to risk, even to sacrifice his life, has made him a legend to other watermen around the world. Men push other men to go farther, to risk more, with three simple words. Eddie would go. And here's what I believe, and here's what I know, and here's what I believe that the Bible tells us. That it wasn't like Matthew chapter 1 arrived. And God looked down on all things, and he saw what a mess life had come to and decided, I've got to come up with a plan. Things are falling apart before me right now. I know. I'll send Jesus. Now, here's what the scriptures teach us, that God has always had a plan, that not one thing has ever gotten out of control, not one piece has ever missed its mark, and that Jesus was a part of the plan from the very beginning. John chapter tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It was Jesus Christ. And when God, at whatever point in God's you know, existence, uh, I, I'm probably getting into deep theology here now, right? Now. I'm getting beyond myself. Jesus has always been a part of that plan, and Jesus had to go, and he has always been willing to go, and he went for you and me. That was God's plan for the world in the first century, and it's still the plan for today. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. Jesus changes everything. Let's look one more time to Matthew chapter 2. Verse 13, things got a little messy here. Herod was disturbed. All of Jerusalem was disturbed. The wise men went to visit Jesus and then left and did not follow his orders to come back to Herod and to tell him where this Jesus was. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. So Herod reacted, and he reacted in a great way. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and get out of here. Take this child and mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod and was so fulfilled with what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Actually, let's read that. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here's what it comes down to. Herod passed these orders. There's a king out there. There's a boy out there who's going to proclaim himself as king. People are proclaiming him as king. My throne is threatened. I want him killed. And so he issued these orders that every baby boy aged two years and younger was to be killed and slaughtered and massacred all throughout Israel. Can you imagine? I mean, this actually took place. Can you imagine the devastation, the fear, and the loss? And again, this just proves that Herod's throne, not only did it symbolize fear, but it also symbolized death. I mean, this was Herod. This is what he was known for. This was a picture of the condition of the world, and it produced a world of fear. But here's what happens. Jesus' throne symbolizes life. It symbolizes a new hope. It symbolizes the hope that things can change that things can be different. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said as his mission, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to make things right again, to put this world back together. He had one focus. He came for the lost. He came with two actions in mind, to seek out and to save those who were lost. And what Jesus was doing was he was painting this picture of a shepherd. A shepherd who so passionately loved his sheep. Not simply managed his sheep, but that he passionately loved his sheep. He loved what he did. And it's the shepherd who would go to great lengths to protect them. It's the shepherd who was willing to do everything to make sure that his sheep were provided for. It's the picture of a shepherd who was willing to give his life for the sake of even just one sheep. And that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our shepherd. It's why he came. Jesus came into the world. He came into this this horrible and crooked world then and even today. He came to seek and to save the lost. And most importantly, he came for you. Jesus Christ came for you. And, and can I give you permission here for just a moment as we close? Can I give you permission to be selfish for a second? I know that you probably didn't expect to hear that this morning. But can I, can I give you permission to be selfish? I want you to take that verse, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to take out some words there. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save. I want you to take out what was lost for just a moment, and I want you to put your name right there in the blank. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save Paul. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save Brian. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save Sarah or Jessica or Matt or Dave. Or or maybe even make it more personal than that. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save me. What does that do for you? What does that mean to you this morning? How could that possibly change things? To know and to realize and to understand and to embrace the fact that Jesus Christ came for you. How could that address the immediate concerns in your life right now? And how could that change your attitude and even your actions this Christmas? Jesus Christ came for you. He lived his life. He risked his life. He gave his life for you. What will you do with that? How can that news change you? And how can that news change your Christmas?
We're going to worship together. As we worship and sing, I just want to invite you to kind of reflect on those words. Think about where you are. Think about what that statement means for you, what it means for Jesus Christ to come and to seek you out and to save you. We'd love to talk with you about that. I'll be available along with some of our elders immediately after the service to talk with you more about that. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've always had a plan and that in plan involved Jesus Christ. And we thank you that even as we live in this world today, as we face fear, as we face uncertainty, Lord, maybe this morning could be a day where we're reminded that you sent Jesus, that he is our hope, and that if we choose him, Jesus changes everything. Thank you that he gave his life for us. I pray for those that are here in this room this morning, Lord, who have not yet embraced that truth. Would you work on their hearts here today? In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.